Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to this Sunday's version of uh, Progressive News Network with Janine Moloff, Brooke Hines, and Rick Spizak. I'm Janine Moloff, and I will be your host tonight. Well, we have a pretty serious issue on the books tonight, and we're going to spend pretty much most of our time talking about it. This week, we're going to discuss a gross miscarriage of justice that's taking place in Missouri right now, but this is a miscarriage of justice that is actually, unfortunately, quite common throughout the United States, and that is the criminal prosecution and um, and basically giving the death penalty to people that are either mentally ill or intellectually disabled. And it's something we really need to think about. You know, when you go on Facebook these days, you see an assortment of people, uh, you know, we love to call them Karens, you know, in terms of their white privilege. I believe uh, Dr. Rashad Ritchie on Indisputable refers to them as um, their values showing their Karenicity. And on Facebook, just this past week, with this execution Missouri looming, of an intellectually disabled person, Karenicity was in full display. Um, <clears throat> so we have here death row inmate Ernest Johnson. Now he is scheduled to be executed this Tuesday by lethal injection. He was convicted in the 90s of three grisly murders, yet the evidence, when you actually read the, tra- the transcripts, <clears throat> the evidence also implicates an accomplice who worked, who basically knew Johnson, lived in the same house. <clears throat> that accomplice took a deal with the prosecutor, he and his brother, actually, there were two of them, against Ernest Johnson in return for being spared the death penalty. We're going to be talking about that in a little bit. Now, what has concerned a multitude of advocacy groups is the plain fact that er- Ernest Johnson is IDD, which stands for Intellectually and Developmentally Disabled. Now, some disability experts estimate his communication skills at the level of a five-year-old child. And the Supreme Court has ruled that those persons with intellectual disabilities are to be spared the death penalty, yet the Missouri Supreme Court and the prosecutors in the case, as well as a former attorney general and the present attorney general in Missouri um, and the community at large really don't care. And that was the... Supreme Court decision in the Atkins case, and I believe it was O2. And the former Attorney General is relevant here because he handled um, fighting Ernest Johnson's appeal. And that former Attorney General went on to become a governor of Missouri. Now, he was a Democrat, and that was Jay Nixon. And I'm very familiar with Jay Nixon because during that time period when he was still in office, there was another case that came to bear also where the state of Missouri was about to execute an innocent autistic man named Kimber Edwards. And I remember that because I was in contact with the Innocence Project at the time uh, very quickly, and I wrote an article that ran in, now it's defunct, but ran in UK Progressive and Reader Supported News and Nation of Change and Op-Ed News. And basically the headline was, State of Missouri set to, about to execute innocent autistic man, Ferguson prosecutor uh, responsible. And when I say Ferguson prosecutor, I don't mean Wesley Bell. I mean the former 
Missouri, the former Ferguson prosecutor, which was Mr. McCullough. This is significant because in states like Missouri, racism cuts across both political parties. The GOP doesn't have um, necessarily a, uh, a monopoly on racism. And former Governor Jay Nixon, former Attorney, Missouri Attorney General Jay Nixon, certainly didn't have a problem trying to execute somebody who was an innocent person with mental disabilities. Now, in the case of Kimber, Wilf, Kimber Edwards, excuse me, it was particularly egregious because right before his planned execution, uh, another person involved in the crimes who was also incarcerated confessed that he was the one that did the murders and Kimber didn't. And with enough pressure, then Governor Jay Nixon gave in and set aside the death penalty. Mr. Edwards still sitting incarcerated. Um, now we have Missourians against the death penalty, a bunch of clergy there trying to get the now governor, Mike Parson, to do the same. I don't share their, um, their optimism. They're trying to appeal to Mike Parson on a, um, on a religious basis. And, you know, my opinion of Mike Parson is when he goes to church, he prays to white Jesus. All right. He, because, oh, and I forgot to mention, both Kimber Edwards and Ernest um, Johnson are black men. And in this case, we're going to talk about today, namely the case of Ernest Johnson, he was accused and convicted of killing three people two of which were white women, and he is a black man. That is a toxic stew in the racist Midwest. Make no mistake about it. Uh, the state of Missouri is every bit as racist as Mississippi and Texas and other places. They just do it good old boy style where basically, you know, it's done casually. They use coded language, but it's still the same thing, and it has the same toxic effect. So now, um, you know, we have Ernest Johnson, the case of Ernest Johnson. He is intellectually and developmentally delayed. He has, it's been approximately his communication skills of a five-year-old child. And the Missouri Supreme Court, as well as two attorney generals, former Attorney General Jay Nixon, as well as present Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, are dismissing that idea. It doesn't matter if he's intellectually disabled to that. Okay, it just doesn't. Um, Governor Mike Parson has, has the power to set aside this execution and relinquish Ernest to life in prison. And, you know, members of the Baptist Church are pleading for compassion. Governor Parson has not responded to date to clergy that are just begging him to show some compassion. And let's look, let's look at why they're asking for compassion. And then I'm going to give you my take on the case. So there is this group, Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. They started a petition. And the first line of the petition is, the state of Missouri is set to kill an intellectually disabled man. Please help us call upon Governor Parson to grant clemency for Ernest Lee Johnson. Now, Mr. Johnson was convicted on three counts of first-degree murder, and that's important, it's first degree, and the 94 deaths of Mary Bratcher, Mabel Scruggs, and Fred Jones. All three were employees of a Casey's convenience store in Columbia, Missouri. 
Now, it, the, thir- the first degree murder thing is very, very important because in order for it to be first degree murder, there has to be premeditation. Personally, being somebody who taught and worked with intellectually disabled people for over 30 years in the school, I would like to know how somebody with the communication skills of a five-year-old was able to plan these murders. Seriously. But let's go on. This is, again, these are good people, Missourians, um, for alternatives to the death penalty. So in the past 26 years of appeals, I'm just reading straight from the the actual um, petition. Courts have upheld his conviction but overturned the death sentences and granted new penalty phases due to errors in presentation of of evidence about Johnson's intellectual developmental disability. I'm going to read that again because I I was a little spotty. So Johnson was convicted on three counts of first-degree murder in 1994. In the past 26 years of appeals, courts have upheld his conviction but overturned the death sentences and granted new penalty faces due to errors, in other words, mistakes, in presentation of evidence about Johnson's intellectual and developmental disability, or IDD. In 2002, I'm just reading straight from the petition now. Um, In 2002, the U.S. Supreme Court decided Atkins v. Virginia, holding that the Eighth Amendment prohibits the execution of people with IDD, with, in other words, intellectual developmental disability. The Supreme Court left to the states how to define IDD in regards to eligibility for a death sentence. That was the mistake. Missouri utilizes a three-part test to determine whether someone is intellectually disabled. A person must establish they have significantly sub-average intelligence continual and extensive related deficits in two or more adaptive functions and the onset of the intellectual disability prior to the age of 18. Ernest Johnson objectively meets all three categories. Ernest Johnson's, excuse me, Ernest Johnson's full-scale IQ tests reveal him to have sub-average intellectual functioning. Intellectual functioning is measured using a full-scale IQ test administered by a trained test administrator. A person with IDD will have an IQ of less than 70 to 75. In contrast, a person of average intelligence will test at 100 on the same scale. Ernest was tested throughout his life and those tests revealed his sub-average intelligence. Okay, moving on. For instance, in 1972, at the age of 12, Ernest scored a 63. Keep that in mind. Let that soak in. At the age of 12 years old, Ernest had an IQ of 63. In 2003 and again in 04, he scored a 67 when tested by the defense and state experts in advance of trial. The results were all well within the range of sub-average intelligence required by Missouri law. Testing of Johnson's IQ over more than 40 years establishes deficits in intellectual functioning that meets the standards set forth in Atkins and proves the onset of the IDD was prior, in other words, before age 18. Two experts, Dr. Keyes and Dr. Smith, also agreed. Quote, he had limitations in four of the nine adaptive behaviors that are identified under Missouri's definition of IDD, and they list them, communication, home living, social skills, and functional academics. 
Now, we're going to go into what all this means, because when they talk about functional academics, they're not talking about grade level things. They're talking about, can you read some basic words? Not necessarily that, just basic words. Um, home living and social skills, we're talking about, can you toilet yourself? I'm serious. Do you feed yourself? Can you zip a zipper? Can you button a coat? And I know this sounds ludicrous, but that's what we're really talking about. And I was part of a testing team as part of my duties as a speech-language pathologist in St. Louis Public for many years. And for about three years, I'm kind of doing a little side right now, I was assigned to a school in the public school that was for children that were multiply handicapped and medically fragile. And quite a few of our children were very low functioning. They were going to go to state school. And state school, we're talking about they had to be so low that if they could use a potty, I don't mean a toilet, a potty chair, even if they were, say, 16 years old, and they could halfway wipe their own behinds and knew to throw the toilet paper in the toilet, they were too high functioning. They were considered closer to normal. That's how stingy the standards are in Missouri. Let this soak in because this is what the prosecutors were dealing with. A person with an IQ in the 60s is not a competent individual. Even if they say it's sub-average, that's very misleading. All right? This is not somebody who would be competent to hold down a job on their own. So prosecuting him and sending him to the death chamber when he's functioning like maybe a five-year-old is akin to sending a five-year-old to the death chamber or losing their temper. And somebody at that level of functioning, in my opinion, would not have the ability to remember a sequence of directions in a plan to show premeditation, much less be able to form the plan. There's no way that this man with an IQ at that level and even more limited communication skills had the ability to plan these murders. No way. Now, when, you, when we go through this, you're going to find that all the media said, well, yeah, he did it, but we should be able, you know, we should spare him uh, execution because he's so low, because he's low functioning. I'm going to argue that the prosecution did not prove that he did it. And that based on their own documentation, the two brothers in the house he lived with his alleged girlfriend could very well have been the perpetrators of those murders. And they used Ernest as a patsy because somebody at that level of IQ is very easy to manipulate. I just wanted to toss that in because this is going to be a long night tonight, people. I took—I only found out about this a couple of days ago. And I'm taking it very personally because this man, although he's only a year younger than me, I had students just like him. And I know how easy it is to manipulate them and how easy it would be for the police to get him to admit to almost anything. and the moral bankruptcy of our entire court system, including the prosecutors. We've talked about this before, and we're going to continue to talk about it. 
Let's move on. According to this petition, which is really just getting people to sign on, uh, but in the, the, I'm sorry, the evidence Ernest Council presented through the testimony of doctors, again, reading from the document, combined with the historical data, established, established that he met the statutory definition of intellectually disabled, in, I'm sorry, uh, intellectually, um, now I'm tired, okay, intellectual disa disabled, okay, IDD. But in 2006, during his third penalty phase, jurors, decided to recommend Ernest be sentenced to death by lethal injection. His current attorney, Jeremy Watt, argued the jury was given instructions, including a clinical definition of intellectual disability, but no guidance on how to apply the clinical definition to the facts. He said that hampered their ability to consider his condition, resulting in a verdict inconsistent with the evidence presented. Okay, so Mr. Weiss told the Missouri Times, quote, if you don't understand what an adaptive function is, there's no definition the court gave them. If you don't understand what it means to have onset before the age of 18, and whether it's documented before the age of 18, the court didn't give any guidance on that. They didn't talk about IQ scores and what IQ score would qualify, what IQ score wouldn't, the margin of error, things like that, said Weiss. So basically, this looks like to me, the instructions the jury was given was pretty much to ignore his disability, and they did. And Weiss argued that instead of leaving the determination to jurors, who are lay people without clinical or scientific expertise, he argued for then-Governor Jay Nixon to establish a special committee of experts to look at the evidence of Johnson's IDD. Instead, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a stay to stop the execution pending the outcome of one of his appeals, which center on claims that the state's execution drug, pentobarbital, could violate the, Fifth, the Eighth Amendment and cause Johnson to experience violent seizures. In addition to an IDD, <coughs> Ernest developed some other disabling conditions over time. He had a brain tumor, and in 2008, part of his brain was removed during surgery to remove the tumor. Scar tissue from the removal could cause him painful seizures after he's injected with pentobarbital, which is a seizure-inducing medication. Johnson's execution was halted in 2015 when a U.S. Supreme Court ruling asked a lower court to review his case. His case has been gone, since gone up and down the court system. Okay? During these appeals, again, I'm reading from this, this social media petition. During these appeals, Johnson challenged the constitutionality, in other words, his lawyers did, the constitutionality of lethal injection under the Eighth Amendment. Okay, they're seeking to hold the state of Missouri to the protections afforded by the Eighth Amendment should they proceed with his execution. Um, Mr. Johnson, his lawyers, in other words, seek an execution protocol that would be humane and consistent with Missouri law. The state, though, continues to push for Mr. Johnson's execution using a method that will likely result in a cruel and painful death, even though other methods of execution are readily available. Uh, Mr. Johnson's case remains stayed by the U.S. Supreme Court while he argues the merits of his Eighth Amendment claim in the federal courts. Even as attorneys for Johnson prepare their appeal for SCOTUS, Eric Schmidt, Missouri Attorney General, has requested an execution date from the Missouri Supreme Court, even though the U.S. Supreme Court stay remains in effect. Now, 
this actual petition, I think it's his his execution is is going to be Tuesday, all right. But this petition, which was issued a little earlier, is pointing out the fact that the Missouri Attorney General is pushing, is requesting an execution date from the Missouri Supreme Court, even though at the time he requested the execution date, the U.S. Supreme Court stay was still in effect. Okay. We are hopeful the Missouri Supreme Court will not set an execution date when it, while his case remains, remains on appeal in the federal courts. While we wait for the Supreme Court to rule, Governor Parson has the powers to intervene, granting Ernest Johnson clemency by amending his sentence to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Today, we ask you to sign this petition asking Governor Parson to prevent Missouri from engaging in torture. We ask Governor Parson to use his executive powers to grant clemency to Ernest Johnson and stop the execution of an intellectually disabled man. Okay, and so again, this was from Missourians for alternatives to the death penalty. Okay, now keep in mind, as I said before, all the media saying Ernest Johnson did it. I don't believe he did. I'm not saying he didn't commit a crime. I believe he committed a crime. I think he was part of a robbery gone bad. And he may have lost it because apparently, according to the facts of the case, he was high on cocaine, which was supplied to him by the person I think actually is the murderer. But I don't think Ernest Johnson had any premeditation. He's not capable of it intellectually. He just isn't. And if there's no premeditation, then there should be no death penalty at all. They got the wrong guy. That's my opinion. But let's move on. So the Missouri Independent um, put out a piece September 23rd, <coughs> excuse me, a week ago, and written by Elise Max, and it's an, an editorial. And the headline is, The State of Missouri is Dead Set on Killing Ernest Johnson. And they show a picture of Ernest, a recent picture, and you see this man obviously in his 60s, and he has that silly, playful look. You're seeing, you know, a silly four-year-old. That's the expression on his face. Okay. So Missouri wants to, you know, he was convicted, as I said before, of killing Mabel Scruggs, Fred Jones, and Mary Bratcher. And it was during a robbery that gone bad at this convenience store. He was under the influence of and severely addicted to crack cocaine at the time. And who supplied him the crack cocaine? Who was his dealer? One of the witnesses. See, there were two witnesses that the um, prosecutor in Columbia used, and then again, the Missouri Attorney General at the time, Jay Nixon, used. And they were brothers that lived in the house of Johnson's supposed girlfriend. And their names are Rodrigo Grant or Rod Grant and Antoine Grant. And Rod Grant was known, he was a, an admitted crack dealer. We're going to kind of go scroll down here a little bit, okay? Um, oops. Sorry, folks, I kind of lost my place here. So, oh, I'm sorry, folks. There's, there's a lot to cover here. Rod Grant 
was a known drug dealer in Columbia, Missouri. He was 18 at the time, so he wouldn't have qualified as a minor any longer. And he and his brother cut a deal. Okay. So let me go to that. Sorry, folks. I'm trying to get to that. Now I lost my place. Nothing like live radio, right? Okay, found it. So, no, we didn't. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. Okay, we're going to move ahead here, but Rod was his, Rod Grant was his cocaine dealer. All right, and Rod Grant also had a history of severe violence using the same kind of tools that were used on the murder victims. <clears throat> so there's been 26 years of appeals, and courts have overturned the death sentences three times because of errors. There's the Atkins v. Virginia decision, Supreme Court decision, which makes it unconstitutional to execute those with intellectual disabilities. Unfortunately, it left it up to the states to determine. And I can tell you, as somebody who participated in the diagnostic process, it seemed like every other year the state monkeyed with the formula. And they did so so they wouldn't have to pay for extra special ed schooling for certain people. Okay? So experts, according to this particular article written by Elise, um, Elise Max. Okay, moving ahead here. They looked at Johnson's IQ scores over nearly 50 years. And they're consistent with academic achievement tests that were also conducted during his childhood. They, the experts found that Johnson operates at the equivalent of a 12-year-old for a level of independence. That doesn't mean he's like a 12-year-old. It means he can do some things independently that you would expect a 12-year-old to do, like be able to unlock a door, um, put things away, maybe operate a microwave, things like that. But they also found that for daily, and not even that, at daily living skills, he was at an age of four years and eight months, not even a five-year-old. And daily living skills are those common sense things. Okay, so even though Johnson may be somewhat in, more independent, he is incapable of just basic daily living skills beyond, not even at the, he, he doesn't even make the, the level of a five-year-old. So how in the world could he fashion a plan to murder these three people? That's the question that nobody asked and should have been asked. Independent, you have to understand, daily living skills, are, let me backtrack a little because it's been a while. Daily living skills are things like, being able to put on your own clothes. Um, maybe you can make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, um, put your toys away, what you would expect from a four- or five-year-old. Excuse my language, but how in the hell could somebody that low-functioning be able to plan with premeditation the murder of three people and a robbery? Explain that one to me. And I would want an explanation from both attorney generals. Former Attorney General Missouri, Jay Nixon, and present Attorney General Eric Schmidt. 
Because you know what? It is impossible. This is basically saying that Ernest Johnson barely has the sense to get in out of the rain. But the prosecution and the judges and a couple of governors have said, oh, but he's competent to be tried and to be executed. Really? I don't think so. Now, this article goes on to say he is not an innocent man, and he's not. He was part of a robbery gone bad. It doesn't mean he planned it, though. But somebody in his little circle worked very hard to make it look like he planned it, and even that didn't go right. The evidence against Ernest Johnson in terms of premeditation was circumstantial at best. Motive and ability to plan those crimes in addition to a past history of violence with articles similar to the murder weapons doesn't point to Ernest Johnson. It points to one of the witnesses. It points to Rod Grant. A person with the limited skills and the limited intellectual ability of Ernest Johnson, again, could not have planned this crime. And planning was essential to establish premeditation in order to offer the death penalty. You have to understand something, people. The term intellectual disability was substituted. The old term was mental retardation. Does that make it clearer now? Okay. The prosecutors in Johnson's case used stereotypes, and they misled the jury repeatedly. They pointed out that he, quote, had street smarts and played cards and played basketball. Okay. I've taught children with limited mentality how to play fish. You tell them what to do and they give you the card. That does not show enough premeditation to plan this crime, to plan the robbery and to plan and, and, and to plan the murders, which I don't think there was a plan to murder these people. In my opinion, I suspect it was a botched robbery and somebody with a really violent temper took over. And again, it still points to one of the witnesses star witness, Rod Grant. Okay. Now, Johnson's attorneys have filed with the Missouri Supreme Court a letter from um, the steering committee of the DSS to assist the court in correcting the error. Um, The Missouri Supreme Court has been asked to reconsider the lack of reliance on clinical standards set forth by the DSM. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, and Intellectual Disability, Definition, Diagnosis, Classification, and Systems of Support. Um, I doubt if they're going to do anything about it. They want to fry this man, period. When I looked on Facebook, talk about Karenicity. People that I later found out were teachers and you know, other professions, other people, they, they, they were bloodthirsty. They were just saying, hang them now. They didn't want to hear anything about evidence. They didn't want to hear about his intellectual disability, nothing. And this is, you know, what we're talking about. Now, Lise Max, who wrote this op-ed, is the executive director of Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. And, again, this is the group really trying to help Mr. Johnson and others. They're statewide. They're nonpartisan, but they are working to abolish the death penalty and educate Missourians on the cost and consequences of the death penalty, and she's from Kansas City. Now, 
There's another op-ed from the Kansas City Star. The headline is, no use even asking Governor Parson not to execute Ernest Lee Johnson because he's disabled. And I agree with him. Okay. Um, keep in mind, there was a former, according to this article, a former Missouri Supreme Court judge, Michael Wolf, um, spoke out. He said, quote, Mr. Johnson is a person with intellectual deficits so significant that a reasonable jury would not have recommended execution. Under constitutional standards, his execution would constitute cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Constitution as interpreted for decades in U.S. Supreme Court decisions, end quote. But you got to remember, we have Governor Mike Parson, a Trumper. This is the same governor who's pretended that COVID is just a cold, refuses to issue a mask mandate, and the fact that Ernest Johnson is a black man accused of killing among three people, and two of which are white women, the visual is pretty obvious. Um, the article points out capital punishment opponents, Sister Helen Prejohn, said something quite illuminating, quote, there are no millionaires on death row. And it's true, there aren't. And Missouri has a history of doing this, all right? Um, but we're going to skip ahead here to more facts on the Johnson case. Now, there, the American Bar Association issued a letter basically pleading with the state of Missouri to not execute Ernest Johnson for the same reasons. It's not going to do any good, unfortunately. Now, let's scoop scooch ahead here. I um, I had test I had basically the original habeas here it is the habeas petition. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the facts of the case because everybody keeps saying this man's guilty of murder and I don't believe he is. Let's go back and read this. Okay. So this was a botched robbery. And when he was arrested, the crime scene, okay, this is straight from the habeas petition, 110 pages <clears throat> under investigation, statement of fact, crime scene. Columbia police were dispatched to a Casey store at 1.15 a.m. on February 13, 1994. The interior store lights were on, but the front door was locked with red smears around the lock. Investigators observed an open floor an open floor space near the front counter that contained receipts, food stamps, checks, but no cash. The cash register drawer was open with mostly empty cash trays. There were multiple bloody shoe prints and so on and so forth. Um, and the victims were found in the walk-in cooler. Okay. So the bodies of two females, later identified as Mabel Scruggs, I'm kind of skipping down here, and Mary Branch were found inside the bathroom with multiple head wounds. Okay. Um, a single 25 caliber shell was found, casing was found on the bathroom floor, but it doesn't say that those wounds were gunshot wounds. Companion spent bullet was never found. <clears throat> and a man later identified as Fred Jones was found inside the walk-in cooler with multiple head wounds. Again, a caliber shell 
for the spent bullet was found inside a soda can in the cooler. Whoever did the shooting was a bad shot. But this was obviously done very stupidly. Okay, that's one thing. Ernest lived at the home of Mary Dolores Grant. Her sons, Rodriguez or Rod, Antoine and Marcus also lived there. <clears throat> now let's go to Rod. Okay. After er First of all, after Ernest was taken into custody, he was interviewed in an area where he could not walk out on his own, and the officers kept him in an interview. He was interviewed from, I think they said, yeah, from 4.15 p.m., to about 5.30 a.m., which is not a legitimate interview. That's just wearing somebody who's already mentally deficient, wearing them down. He didn't confess to anything. He did say on several occasions that, quote, it took more than one man to do that job and one man was not strong enough. This is according to what the officers wrote. Okay. We really don't know if that's what Ernest said because we have found too much evidence of police lying. Um, let's talk about the witnesses. Star witness, Rod Grant, was an admitted crack dealer. I'm reading straight from this. Ernest frequently bought crack from Rod and owed him money for prior purchases. Rod was 18 years old, and Antoine, that's his brother, was 16, as of February 12, 1994. Get this, Rod also had a violent personality. He was prosecuted for felonious assault for repeatedly stabbing his pregnant girlfriend, Deborah Watson, with a screwdriver. On numerous occasions, Rod had beaten Deborah, attempted to choke her, and had pulled the gun on her. Why wasn't Rod charged most likely with these murders and not Ernest? Well, he wasn't because he made a deal with the prosecutor. But when you're talking about who most likely was guilty, you have to have motive, but you also have to have, uh, you know, who had a history of violence. It wasn't Ernest. It was Rod. Read that again. Rod had a violent personality. He had been prosecuted for felonious assault, for basically repeatedly stabbing his pregnant girlfriend with a screwdriver. And he had beaten Deborah, his girlfriend, his pregnant girlfriend, attempted to choke her and pulled a gun on her. And he was an admitted crack dealer. So here's what happened. Rod was offered a deal along with his brother. Yeah. Go to it. Um, in exchange for Rod Grant's testimony, the state agreed to recommend a sentence of 10 years in prison for aiding and abetting Ernest Johnson before the defendant allegedly committed a robbery. In exchange for Antoine Grant, Antoine Grant was, um, was um, certified as an adult. So in return for his testimony, the state agreed not to prosecute him for two charges of tampering with evidence. Think about that for folks, for a minute, folks. How can you trust that type of testimony? How can you trust it? You can't. 
And yet this is what they prosecuted and convicted Ernest Johnson on. Now, Ernest Johnson has an IQ in the 60s. I'd like to know how he planned this robbery and with premeditation committed murder. What was his, what was his motive then? That Casey store he went into on a daily basis, so presumably he had a decent relationship with the people there. Why would he want to kill them? And I know these are all opinions, but as I started looking at this case more and more, every article kept saying that Ernest Johnson's guilty. Well, he is guilty of attempted robbery. That part's true. And he may have committed some acts of violence. We don't know yet because, again, there's no mention of DNA evidence. No mention of Antoine or Rod's DNA on anything. No mention of Ernest's DNA on anything. And in the 90s, they had access to DNA. Might have taken a long time. But between now and between then and now, they could have done it. It's just circumstantial evidence and nothing else. And yet you have a witness there, a lead witness, Rod Grant, with a history of violence, had a history of prosecution for violence. And, oh, yeah, the people that were, that were killed, they had been bludgeoned to death with a screwdriver. Who has a history of doing that? It wasn't Ernest, but Rod does, Rod Grant. But in my opinion, the prosecution wanted an easy win. So they cut a deal with the two brothers who presumably have average intelligence and took advantage of Ernest Johnson, who you can say intellectually disabled, but to use the old term that people have said, he was mentally retarded. Okay, it may not be a nice thing to say, but the truth. The prosecutors and the police took advantage of a mentally retarded man, period. That's it. It's really that simple. Now, this is something that, again, after working with people for a very long time that have these issues, when you have somebody who has limited intellectual ability, <clears throat> this is based as a special ed professional for over 30 years. You're talking about intellectual limitations. You're not merely talking about their ability to understand things. You're also talking about emotional regulation, their ability to control their emotions. Somebody who is that low functioning would have a harder time controlling themselves. You've seen a four-year-old lose it, okay? They have. <clears throat> um, and it's possible, I guess Ernest Johnson could have, but again, unless you're going to start holding five-year-old, four- and five-year-old children responsible if they have, you know, for their actions, then I don't see how you can hold Ernest Johnson responsible. I mean, what's next? If you have a gun in the house, and Junior is mad at his big brother, sees the gun, four, maybe five years old, picks it up, hides behind the wall or hides in a corner, and when brother comes, goes bang, bang. Are you going to prosecute and execute that four-year-old or five-year-old? Of course not. Well, guess what? With Ernest Johnson, you have a big five-year-old. That's it. And again, the history the evidence points to the fact that there is someone else 
with a history of violence, violence not coming from necessarily crack cocaine, a history of violence, a history of assault, serious assault and battery, who was able to cut a deal with the prosecutor and is presumably now out of jail. And he shouldn't have been allowed to do that. Just saying. So let's move on. So let's look at Missouri's history because it, it, it isn't just this case. You know, we know that Missouri can't legally execute 61-year-old Ernest Lee Johnson on October 5th, which is Tuesday. And that's because in the Adkins Supreme Court decision, you can't kill someone that is that cognitively impaired. That, that, you can't kill someone that is too mentally retarded to understand the whole issue. Because that would violate the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Now, the Supreme Court in Missouri, this is from the Missouri, let me go back up. The Missouri Supreme Court ruled back in August that Ernest Johnson, the same Ernest Johnson who, um, for treatment of a tumor, had part of his brain removed in 08, can't be that disabled because he planned, quote, the 1994 closing time murder of three Columbia convenience store workers. Okay. How did somebody with an IQ in the 60s plan with premeditation those murders and why? Makes no sense. And that's why, you know, former Missouri Supreme Court Judge Michael Wolf spoke out against it. But once again, this is what we're dealing with. So let's look at Missouri itself. I refer to this as the infamous 10 that were executed in 2020 alone. Okay? There were 10 federal prisoners that were executed in 2020. And they included, and I'm just going to read straight from this, one, they included a man with such late-stage Alzheimer's that he didn't know why he was being killed. Alzheimer's. They executed two men who were teenagers at the times of their crimes. The government executed, this isn't all in Missouri, but at the federal level, the government executed a Native American, um, even though his crime was committed on tribal lands, and despite the fact that the Navajo Nation, which should have had sovereignty since it was on their land, opposed capital punishment. In 2020, the feds killed a black man convicted by an all-white jury. The feds also executed a man with an IQ so low that he also should have been disqualified for the death penalty because he was too low functioning. In 2015, okay, here in Missouri, 74-year-old Cecil Clayton was put to death despite severe mental illness, dementia, and intellectual disabilities related to his advanced age. Okay? In 2014, a man named John Middleton was put to death in Missouri, even though he had multiple mental health disorders. A day before his execution, a federal judge in Missouri stayed his execution. The judge's name is Catherine Perry. 
and that judge was concerned that Middleton just wasn't mentally competent enough and shouldn't be eligible for the death penalty. But even though this federal judge stayed the execution, Missouri officials executed him anyway. Let me repeat that. John Middleton, 2014, was put to death. He had multiple mental health disorders. A day before his scheduled execution, federal judge, federal, federal judge Catherine Perry um, was concerned that he wouldn't be mentally competent and thus eligible for the death penalty. And she issued a stay, a legal stay of his execution, saying it's not going to happen that day. But Missouri officials executed him anyway. This is what we're dealing with. This is what we're dealing with here in Missouri. Make no mistake about it. It's, now keep in mind, another example, Ernest Johnson is a black man who killed, who's accused of killing three people, two of which were white women. And the community is up in arms, school teachers, white pastors, um, you know, business people. They're all on Facebook saying just burn them already. The Karenicity was beyond belief. It was truly evil. Uh, I got into it with one woman. I won't say her name on air. And then she accused me of being a Karen because I, I said, you know, I, I objected to what she was doing. And then I looked her up on her own Facebook um, profile. She's a middle school teacher. How nice. That's sarcasm, by the way. So this is what this is all about. Now, keep in mind, look at the treatment of Ernest Johnson, who is, to use the old term, mentally retarded, has, has an IQ in the 60s, has the life skills that are slightly less than a five-year-old. They're determined to execute him, even though the star witness in this case, Rod Grant, looks like he would be the one that actually did the murders, including the, the weapon of choice matches what Rod Grant has used in the past to nearly kill his pregnant girlfriends. But they allowed Rod Grant to cut a deal while, along with his brother, and then they went after Ernest Johnson. Now compare that treatment. Compare that treatment to another case, again, the case of Kimber Edwards, an innocent autistic man who was days before his scheduled execution, like I talked about at the beginning of this, this broadcast, he was a black man, and the person who did it, who was white, finally confessed literally the day before the scheduled execution. Now, he did get his sentence commuted to life in prison, but he was just a day away. Now, compare that to the mollycoddling of Kyle Rittenhouse. That was a white boy that went out there with premeditation determined to kill, and he did. Don't tell me part of this isn't about racism. Of course it is. Now, I can tell you with all sentiment, I'm going to be writing another article about this and sending it out, but this is an issue that is so vile. 
in the instance in 14 of John Middleton, Missouri officials, and that was that was when Jay Nixon was governor. Um, they executed a man where there was a, a federal state on his execution date. They violated the orders of the federal judge because they don't care. So now we have Missouri Ge- Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who is also arguing that er- that Ernest Johnson is not mentally challenged and he has to die. That's what that's what Eric Schmidt's office argued. Now here's the ironic part: Eric Schmidt. According to his own bio, that because he's also running for the U.S. Senate seat being vacated by uh, Roy Blunt, on his bio um, gave the information that he has a child that is medically fragile and developmentally delayed and intellectually delayed. You know, they're white. And again, the, the irony, the hypocrisy of it is beyond the pale. Keep in mind, when I keep talking about Rod Grant, the star witness against Ernest Johnson, what Johnson was convicted of was heinous. Those murders were grisly. All three victims, according to his article, were beaten with a claw hammer. This is significant. Just like Rod Grant, the star witness. That's what Rod Grant did to his pregnant girlfriend. But Grant received a life sentence in return for what can only be called suborned perjury by the prosecution. Period. These jailhouse snitches, these jailhouse, these these plea deals in return for testimony. Again, the judge shouldn't have allowed it. You know, Rod Grant had a history of violence. Why in the world did they allow? his, you know, his testimony. The murder weapons matched the weapon of choice that Rod Grant used against his pregnant girlfriend. Okay. And another of the, so basically all three victims in this grisly murder were beaten with a claw hammer. One was shot and another stabbed with a screwdriver. Okay. Rod Grant owned a gun. Rod Grant had stabbed his girlfriend, pregnant girlfriend, with a screwdriver. He had beaten her with a claw hammer. What more does it take? They convicted of they convicted of premed they convicted the wrong man of premeditated murder, in my opinion. Ernest Johnson, again with an IQ of 60, 63, whatever does not have the intellectual ability to even remember a plan, much less plan and ex- plan and follow through accurately with the plan. He just doesn't. The Grant brothers, Rod and Antoine, both do. But, of course, we've never heard of, you know, crack dealers committing violent crime. No, not at all. Again, I'm being very sarcastic. But, you know, once again, the prosecution should have looked at both Grant brothers, both Rod and Antoine, but instead they cut deals with the prosecutor, who was the attorney general back then, Jay Nixon. These deals were very lenient in return for testimony against Ernest Johnson. There, again, there is no way somebody with an IQ in the 60s could have planned and implemented this plan accurately. None. No more than a five-year-old could have. So, 
in my opinion, am I accusing the ex-Attorney General, who was a Democrat, Jane Nixon, of suborning perjury from witnesses? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. This is a total miscarriage, grievous miscarriage of justice. And um, I just don't have any patience for this anymore. I just don't. This is something that has happened too often. Okay. And, you know, this is, we, we have to deal with this. Okay. There, again, there's going to be multiple appeals tomorrow, the day before the execution. Um, we need as many prayers as possible, but the community is so bloodthirsty, and the way the media pushed this, the media, the mainstream media did not investigate this properly. At the time of the trial, they should have questioned the deal that was cut, the deal that was offered by then Attorney General Jay Nixon to Rod Grant and Antoine Grant. And remember, in the 90s, you know, Rod Grant was a crack dealer, and that was the, the 90s were the period when, you know, penalties for dealing crack were made far worse. Okay. This is not the first time this has happened. You know, we talked about Kimber Edwards. All right. He had a unique form of autism called Asperger's syndrome. Um, and, you know, in in terms of his trial, the prosecution kept pushing the fact that you know, he wasn't showing any remorse. Well, because, again, he couldn't read those social cues. You know, once again, anybody who has a loved one who has any sort of developmental disability, especially an intellectual disability, has to have this same worry. Because these the people that suffer through this are going to continue to be cannon fodder for crooked police, and even more crooked prosecutors and judges that care more about gaining political points than they do about justice. Just that simple. And um, there's nothing new here. None. You know, so when you're looking at this, you need to ask yourself the question, could a person... Again, whose IQ is in the 60s, be competent enough to not only plan premeditated murder of three people, but accurately implement the plan. And any professional in the field would tell you no. They wouldn't even be able to remember it. Could a person like Ernest Johnson, who daily living skills is, are less than a five-year-old child, could he have done this? No. He doesn't have the intellectual ability. But the Grant brothers did. But again, pursuing a wily crack dealer would have been a harder sell than going after, again, somebody with intellectual disabilities, a black man who is mentally retarded. That's it. 
And the prosecutor, the attorney general that kept pushing this, once again went on to become governor, Missouri Democrat Jay Nixon, although he's no more, he's a Democrat, Jay Nixon is a Democrat like Joe Manchin was, is, frankly. And now Jay Nixon works for the, uh, he's a partner of the law firm Dowd Bennett here in town. And he te- ironically teaches at Washington University Law School. And the truth is, Jay Nixon should be facing a criminal investigation because to me it looks like looks like he ignored evidence and suborned perjury from witnesses so he could win. That's my opinion. Um, I have lost my faith in the justice system altogether. And again, I'm drawing on my experience as a special educator for over 30 years. Okay, a person with an IQ in the 60s, you give them a two or three step direction, something like take the attendance to the office, get the folder from the secretary and come back. They'd have a hard time following it. So how in the hell did he have the ability to, with premeditation, commit three murders? Notice, I'm asking difficult questions because I do not accept the idea that Ernest Johnson committed these murders. I don't. So that's our talk tonight about the looming execution, the unjust execution of Ernest Johnson. And let me just see if we have one more thing. I know Burke's been on the mend. And I'm looking to see if it's here. And I don't see anything. Okay. So we're going to continue to cover these difficult, these difficult subjects. Um, we're going to be talking about not only police reform, but prosecutorial reform. The entire system. I mean... Um, we have allowed for too long the police and the prosecutors to get by on a technicality and get away with a hideous miscarriage of justice, again, on a technicality. And this has to stop because on Tuesday, I am terrified that they are going to execute an innocent man. And that's something that cannot be allowed. That is what's happening with Ernest Johnson. Now, we're going to talk about our political heroes, zeros, and villains. This one's easy. Political villain of the day. There's actually two of them. Former Missouri Attorney General Jay Nixon and present Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt for their role in the Ernest Johnson case, their failure to abide by the Supreme Court ruling in the Atkins decision. And they did so by playing with technicalities and monkeying with the formula and denying the obvious that Ernest Johnson is too deficient to have been able to show, to have any premeditation in relation to this crime. And I keep harping on it because it's that important. Ernest Johnson, even if he committed the murders, 
If he is incapable of showing premeditation, the death penalty would have been off the table. Then the charge would have either been manslaughter, uh, felony murder, uh, or second-degree murder. It should be mentioned early on in the case, Rod Grant was initially charged with felony murder in the botched um, robbery. And then magically it went away. And then all of a sudden it became three counts of premeditated murder against Ernest Johnson. Notice I'm not just making accusations. I'm asking pertinent questions because it doesn't fit. Anybody who has a family member with an intellectual deficit, you need to ask yourself, could they do that? No. So, yes, I do blame Jay, former Missouri Attorney General and former governor, Democratic Governor Jay Nixon, and I also blame present Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who has a child that is intellectually delayed as well. Because this, this lack of compassion, this lack of justice is a disgrace. It just is. <clears throat> and this is something that we have to address. This is not something that can continue. It just isn't. Now, there is another smaller story. And this one has to deal with the, uh, the issue of growing white supremacy all right, here in Missouri and around the nation. You know, last month we were expecting a big um, you know, big problem in these, you know, the Justice for J6 group. They were going to attack D.C. like they did in January 6th. And it fizzled. The problem is, that these same white supremacists and, yes, neo-Nazi groups are fanning out, and there's evidence to show that they are basically setting their sights at the local level, and quite a few of them are behind, either instigating or directly behind the violence, that the increasing violence that we're seeing at school board meetings regarding masking policies and the anti-mask movement. And this is something that we're going to have to deal with as well. Now, there was a piece that was just published September 29th, a few days ago, by Megan Ellis. And the, um, the headline is, Proud Boys Set Their Sights on a New Political Agenda Amid Turmoil and Setbacks. Now, the Proud Boys have been identified by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a known hate group. They are affiliated not only with white supremacists, but also neo-Nazi. Um, and we know that recently Alexandria, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, tweeted that the FBI doesn't really have a protocol or plan for dealing with white supremacist neo-Nazi groups within the continental U.S. Not only that, but they don't have a plan for dealing with white supremacists and neo-Nazis within the ranks police. And that is... The FBI's got to get it together. So Cassie Miller, who is a senior research analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, 
spent many years following the Proud Boys, which is an all-male extremist group. The Proud Boys consider themselves to be Western chauvinists, which, you know, once again, white supremacists, they um, believe women should be just do what they're told. Um, so according to, you know, Cassie Miller, she uh, shed light on the future of the extremist organization and the agenda they reportedly have going forward as documented by NPR. Quote, uh, this is Miller, in the aftermath of that, suddenly everyone, in other words, we're talking after January 6th, everyone was talking about who the Proud Boys were and people were submitting applications to join the group. Now, the group is known for aggression and violent attacks on people. But now, according to Miller, the group's strategizing at a different level. And they're looking more at local issues. And according to Miller's quote, they're simply switching up their organizational style. Now they are organizing more at a local level. They're hosting local rallies or they're joining into other rallies around political flashpoints like critical, critical race theory or anti-masking, end quote. Okay. She also goes on to say, quote, what they want to do is normalize their brand of politics, which is one that is authoritarian, that wants to push the creation of a more hierarchical society where men, and white men in particular, retain the most power, end quote. Now, her remarks followed after several warnings from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security about, you know, the rise in domestic terrorism, again, as documented by the NewYorkTimes.com. Okay. Michael Chertoff, who was the former uh, Homeland Security Secretary under George W. Bush's administration, was quoted saying, quote, in my view, it is domestic terrorism mounted by right-wing extremists and neo-Nazi groups. We have to be candid and face what the real risk is. And he's right. And this is why we're seeing the violent, more violence at these school board meetings. And again, the police, they're not doing much. Okay, so, you know, once again, um, let's move on here. Now, researchers have basically claimed that the Proud Boys membership is below 40,000, okay? But, again, it's been a period of growth since Trump during the one debate said stand down and stand by which is military talk for get ready to attack, okay? Um, so, you know, once again, the Proud Boys are also building alliances according. Now, this is, a, this is an article by NPR, okay? So this is NPR, um, St. Louis NPR, actually. And um, it was written by Odette Youssef, the head... September 29th, the headline is After Arrest and Setbacks, Far-Right Proud Boys Press New Ambitions. And that's what they're doing. They're going local. And the increase, the subsequent increase in violence is no coincidence. Okay. Now, it's ironic because the Proud Boys chairman, Henry Enrique Terrio, was actually revealed recently to be an FBI, to be a federal informant. Okay, but I don't really care. 
They're building alliances, okay? And the alliances are very frightening. Both Cassie Miller basically has said that they've moved their, beyond their, their focus previously was on street fights, uh, usually against what they thought were Antifa uh, activists. Now they're forging alliances with groups on the right. And um, members of the Proud Boys have attended the following anti-abortion prayer events with conservative Christian organizations. They protested the removal of Confederate monuments in North Carolina. And in Washington State, they responded to a false rumor that a student would be arrested for not wearing a mask. And that is what triggered the lockdown of three schools. These alliances should make people very frightened. You need to be concerned. Um, and then basically, Miller's, Cassie Miller's seen evidence that some Republican politicians have also embraced this kind of violence and free speech suppression that the Proud Boys pushed. She um, mentioned bills that were introduced in at least six states um, in, after the Black Lives Matter rallies last summer that gave protection to drivers so that they could run over protesters. And that's as documented by CNN.com. She also noted that some GOP lawmakers like U.S. Senator Paul Gosar are increasingly using the language of war, including the possibility of civil war, and that is as documented by thecurrent.com. So this is what we're dealing with here. The Nevada Independent, there's an article here. It's a little older. It's from October of 2020. It's written by John Smith. It is an editorial, and it says, Proud Boys in Pandemic Politics as Trump's Deadly Mask-Free Masquerade Ends. So the Proud Boys, apparently, according to this, have been a, a constant presence at a lot of rallies like Mask-Free Nevada and Reopen Nevada rallies. And they're not as noticeable as other allies on the alt-right, such as the 3% militia. But you notice the Proud Boys because of their AR-15s and tactical gear, okay? They come with guns blazing and in plain sight. So when, you know, you have to remember, <laughs> during that debate, Trump was asked repeatedly to denounce white supremacy and hate groups specifically such as the Proud Boys. And his response to, quote, Proud Boys stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what, somebody has to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right-wing problem. This is a left-wing problem, end quote. When Trump issued that statement, that just came straight from the Nazi playbook. And unlike a lot of people, as an actual Jew, yes, I can say that. So you have to go back and see the Proud Boys um, began, according to this, in 2016, and they were founded by, um, excuse me, <laughs> Vice News co-founder Gavin McGinnis. Now, McGinnis loves to talk about illegals in the U.S. He actually holds dual citizenship now. But for a while there, he was a Canadian citizen without papers here in the U.S. I know, the irony is really ridiculous. Um, so the Proud Boys, when you saw, for instance, when you looked at um, 
what happened, uh, you know, in in um, in 2017 with the killing of Heather Heyer. Um, these are the guys when you saw the tor- the tiki torches and the the march. Um, when you saw these guys wearing black polo shirts, looking all preppy, those were the Proud Boys. They tried to make themselves look more pro-Western and look less radical. They're radical. Now, the Proud Boys claim to be anti-racist, but, you know, that's bull. Okay. Um, Darren... Again, McGinnis, who is Gavin McGinnis, who is the founder of the Proud Boys, he did leave the organization in 2018. But he, um, you know, McGinnis though once told his fans and followers, "quote We will kill you." That's the Proud Boys in a nutshell. We will kill you. We look nice. We speak soft. We have boys in our name. But like Bill the Butcher in the Bowery Boys, we will assassinate you. End quote. Now, McInnes meant the original Proud Boys, not these kinder, gentler uh, facades. But it's all a con, okay? It just is. It's the same thing. Um, that's why we're seeing violence in these anti-mask uh, rallies once again. Um, you know, there was a presence of the Proud Boys and three percenters of the No Mask Nevada rallies. Um, but again, the Republicans aren't concerned. So this is what we're dealing with here. Okay. So these are, you know, the losers that we're dealing with. You know, the Southern Poverty Law Center, they have a, um, what they call it, a section called Hate Watch. <laughs> Excuse me. Again, Kathy Miller, this was an, this analysis was created August 25th, just a month ago, in 2021. Um, and this analysis, they were talking about the Proud Boys. They had another uh, series of confrontational demonstrations in Portland, Oregon. Um, and, you know, once again, uh, Sunday's protest in August in Portland was dubbed the Summer of Love Rally. Uh, New York Proud Boy Randy Ireland announced yet another forthcoming demonstration, and Ireland said that far-right activists would hold their next event at September 18th. And remember, that was the event everybody was worried about, and then last minute, the, the, these extremists said, no, don't show up, it's a trap. So to quote, however, Ireland, uh, quote, what we're going through is a war on the U.S. Constitution, and he stood in front of this far-right crowd and in front of a banner that read, quote, free our political prisoners. Um, you know, these are the people that try to turn Ashley Babbitt into a, um, a martyr, if you will. Okay, this is what we're dealing with here. All right, there's a picture as here. Was a member of the Proud Boys uh, fighting with a left-wing counter-protester in a truck. Apparently, let's see, there was an image that was taken by photojournalist Nathan Howard. It shows a man wearing a Proud Boys shirt and a Proud Boys logo on his helmet. 
attacking a bloodied man in the driver's seat of the truck. Other members of the group smashed the vehicle's windows and slashed its tires. Um, there was another far-right contingent that attacked a medical van and its driver, as is documented by Twitter.com Riot Crotch. Um, again, they had the Proud Boys insignia on the backpack. Um, so, you know, this is what we're dealing with here. And um, we have to deal with it. Okay. This is how it starts. This is how it started during Hitler's early days. Do not just blow this off. It is going to be a real problem. Okay. So, once again, this is this is the situation. We have a country that's literally breaking down in front of us. We have elements of the far right that are threatening civil war. And we have a Democratic Party that is too cowardly to stand up to them. That's simple. And as we said at the beginning of the show, we have a black man who is intellectually deficient that will most likely be executed on Tuesday. We have stories of two attorney generals who appear to have conducted themselves um, dishonestly. And we're dealing with extremist elements like the Proud Boys. You can't be neutral here. Ellie Weissel said it, and it's true. Your silence only helps your oppressor. It's time for people to wake up, and it's time for them to once again stand up and do the right thing. Just do it. So that's our show for tonight. Hopefully you learned something from it. Hopefully some of you will call the Missouri governor and give him a piece of your mind. And with that, I will say good night and God bless us.